Hey, before we get into First Peter, I want to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 28 just for a moment. I want to remind us of something in Matthew chapter 28 before we get into First Peter. Because uh, what Jesus says here, I think, really important, really good. We love the Great Commission, and we love to talk about the Great Commission in regard to wanting those that don't know Christ to hear about Him and have the opportunity to come to know Him. And it's just such a driving reality for us, the Great Commission um, at the church. And so we know that the Great Commission um, happened on the day that Jesus ascended into heaven. And I want to point out something because it has a lot to do with what we're going to look at today. Verse 16, Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Let me just stop there just for a moment. Has that not always been the case? There's been a gathering of people focused on Jesus in his presence, and there's some that are like, I'm all in, and there's some are like, I'm just not totally for sure that I'm all in. And it even happened with those who'd spent so much time with him. They were doubting and not for sure of all that was going on. Then 18, then Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and everything rests with him. 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now look up here just for a moment. So I want you to go. You proclaim. People come to faith. Um, I want you to do that. And I want you to make disciples, not just converts. I want, I want you to proclaim, see people come in. And as you do that, we make disciples. We're not just interested in converts. We want people to know what it means to walk with them. Now look at the next verse. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I want to focus on that first part of verse 20 for a moment. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now look up here. This is kind of a neglected part of this commission that Jesus gave the church. We love the going part. We love the proclaiming part. We love seeing people enter the kingdom part. But do we love proclaiming every word of the scripture and seeing that those who come to faith begin to walk and embrace every word of scripture? Part of the great commission is the proclamation of all of the words of God, not the ones that we just go, woo, love that one. Love that one. Love to memorize that one. Love to say that one. When trouble comes or I'm in a heartache or something like that, I, I rely on that. And what we're going to do today, I'm just going to tell you up front. Are you all ready? This is not going to be one of those, oh, man, awesome, awesome talk topic this morning. Just going to tell you that. A lot of times the topics that we've walked through First Peter, kind of motivating, exciting. We're going to talk about elders this morning. Doesn't that sound great this morning? Hello? <laughs> so <clears throat> part of being committed to teaching all of the Scripture and teaching us how to walk with God in the Scripture means that we come to text today. The text we're going to look at today, I guarantee you, if, if you do not walk verse by verse through the Scripture, nobody this year at any church in America has teaching on the text that we're going to look at today. Nobody's going to do that, maybe in some Bible study somewhere, but not on Sunday morning. But because we are committed to knowing all of the counsel of God, we get to come to exciting topics like elders. John, I can tell John's just like, man, I cannot wait. Okay, John, because you can't wait, I'm going to get started, okay? All right. 
Sweeter than honey on my t- uh, that's right, that's my taste. All right, First Peter chapter 5, you'll go there with me. <clears throat> this is actually, I'm not trying to say, hey, this is going to be boring. It's actually really good, but it's just one of those that in the beginning you're going to go, oh, great. Anyway, or hopefully you won't. All right, First Peter chapter 5. Let me go ahead and read it all, and then I'll do a brief introduction, and then we'll get into the text. So again, coming out of all of this counsel about persecution, he comes now and he's going to address in 5, really through 11, is kind of going to be the last teaching um, about things, and then he has a final salutation in 12 through 14. So verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And I'm going to stop there. Because in this first part here, he's going to divide this up in two ways. Verses 1 through 4 is counsel to elders and how they lead the sheep in the shepherding role. Um, Verses 4 through 10 are going to be the counsel of what's the sheep's responsibility in response to the elder's leadership and some other things. And so we're going to talk today about the elder part of this. So let me ask this question. In a local congregation and within the church... Who is responsible for shepherding and pastoring a local congregation? Is it just solely the pastor? Does it rest with the elders, the deacons, the congregation? In the broadest sense, the responsibility in a very broad way lies with all of us. We are all to take care of one another and kind of shepherd one another and encourage one another. But in regard to the day-to-day aspects of things and the leadership of ongoing mission and things of that nature, in a narrow sense, the responsibility for the pastoral care and leadership in a church rests with the elders in a local body um, in a congregation. The pastor is one of the elders. He is. A, we're going to talk about a plurality of that here in a little bit. And the pastor should be rightly viewed as the teaching elder who proclaims the truth of God and encourages the body on Sunday morning on a consistent basis with the proclamation of God's Word, calling the body to walk in the truth of God. And so the task of all the elders in a local church is to shepherd the flock of God with a unique calling and a unique responsibility. And so um, this is not a new concept when you come to the New Testament. As a matter of fact, this was established back in the Old Testament. Moses was leading... Um, probably close to a million people in the desert. And the responsibility um, with their original structure lied with him. And so day after day after day after day after day, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people were coming to Moses alone for counsel. And it was getting to a point where it was just very overwhelming for him. And so God gave some direction to Moses to select some elders from among the tribes that would be people who would help rule and guide and help Moses exercise leadership as they walk through the desert. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 11. Uh, in, in, that, in Numbers chapter 11, the context of that is, is when they've been complaining about 
all, all we get every morning is what? Manna. We're tired of manna. We want meat. Tired of manna. We want meat. And so God is kind of upset with them because they're proclaiming and saying out loud, we had better food back in Egypt. It'd be better for us to go back there. And so God tells them, okay, I want you to... S- to Moses, I want you to select some elders, and I'm going to give you meat, and boy, am I going to give you meat. You're going to hate meat. It's going to be coming out of your nostrils. I'm going to give you so much meat, and I'm going to do this to tell you that you have not listened to me and fully trusted in me. So establishment of elders goes all the way back to the Old Testament. If you look further, when the kings were established, there were elders who um, worked with the prophets. Let me just read a verse, 2 Kings 6, 32. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. And now the king had dispatched a man from his presence. And so Elijah's there. He's got elders of Jerusalem with him. Not only that, but elders were also, in the Old Testament sense, they were advisors to some of the kings. 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 7. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said this. And so he sought advice from the elders from within the tribes living in Israel. When they came back after the Babylonian Persian captivity, they came back and as Ezra was establishing his ministry, Ezra utilized the elders and the leadership uh, within the nation to help him. This is Ezra 10, 7. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all of his property should be forfeited. And so there was a role there. In time, the elders within Israel became the leaders of the local synagogues. We know from Revelation chapter 24, how many, or excuse me, 24 in Revelation, how many, I just gave it away, how many elders are there going to be? 24, okay, that didn't work very well. But anyway, there are 24 elders that are gathered around the throne. And as Peter brings this letter to a close, he's going to address this important role of eldership. If you're an elder, would you stand up in the room this morning, an elder of the church here? So you can kind of see. So we go, wow, we got just about everybody is in here, and then Tim is out there. Okay, y'all can sit down. We've seen you. All right. So let me talk about <clears throat> the righteous calling of an elder. And we're going to look at a few passages. I want you to go to 1 Timothy just for a moment. Go back to your left. A few books and go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So first thing I want to kind of establish this morning is just the righteous calling of an elder, and we'll do so with some various texts, and then we'll go back to 1 Peter. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. So Paul writes this to Timothy. We believe Timothy is the, uh, in time, becomes the pastor of the church in Ephesus, from what we can understand things. And so he is writing to this young pastor. We know he's young, because through it he tells, don't let anybody look down on you because you are young. And so Timothy was a young pastor, elder. And so 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 says this, The saying is trustworthy, Paul writes, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he might not fall into disgrace 
into a snare of the devil. So this is a calling here that, that, that is being established for Timothy. These are the qualifications in regard uh, to eldership. Titus, verse 5, let me just read it to you. Uh, Paul writing to Titus says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul writes as well to Titus. Here are some other qualifications as well, not necessarily other, but there's some detail there that's not in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So let me give you the three New Testament names in regard to elder um, that are used in the New Testament. First one is a word that, that we translate the word bishop or the word overseer. Okay, bishop or overseer is the word episkopos. Uh, and it's the word that means, that, that carries the idea of guardianship. That elders are to guard as a shepherd does with his flock. He's to oversee the flock and take care of them. And he has to guard them and fight for them. The second word that the New Testament uses in regard to leadership in the church is a word called, po- it's poimen in the Greek. And, the, and it means shepherd or pastor. And that's another aspect. There's a shepherding and a pastoring aspect in regard to this. And this main role is the feeding, the priority of feeding the sheep the Word of God and pointing them and calling them to walk in truth. So there's a guardianship of this role of elder. There is a feeding aspect where there is a proclamation and a call to the church to walk in the truth of God's Word. And then the third word that's used in the New Testament is the word presbyterion, which you can hear that, Presbyterian church. This is a word that means this. It means elder. And it refers to the spiritual maturity of a man. In the beginning, the word elder referred to old people. But in time, when the church, it, it, it had to, much more to do with maturity. Now, you know this. Um, sometimes you can be very young, and there can be such great maturity that's there. And it's connected to someone who walks with God intimately, they love God's Word, and God has done a work young, younger in their life that, you, they, that is not required to building up the years and experience. And so sometimes there are people who, who may be young, but there's such a spiritual maturity in their life that they can function in that role um, of elder. Let me give just a few other examples that the Bible talks about. The name elders is found in the first part of Philippians, 1 Timothy, and also in Titus. Uh, Paul in Acts 14, 23 says this, that as they went through Asia Minor, they established elders in all of the churches that had been established. There was elders that were established to lead in that. Titus was left in Crete to establish elders in all the churches on the island of Crete. Um, James five fourteen that elders have a special responsibility when people in the body may be sick, that they can come to the elders and they can be anointed with oil and you can pray um, over them. In Acts 11.30, the elders were charged with the responsibility of this famine that came in the land of taking care of the money and distributing it so that everybody could um, have food. Paul's last visit as he's passing through Jerusalem on his way to Rome where he's going to be tried and eventually he will die. In Acts 21, he meets with the Jerusalem elders and they talk about some matters and the elders speak into Paul's life about probably likely what's going to be coming for him. Um, all through it and outlined in First Timothy and other places, there are aspects of guidelines in regard to what elders should be like. Um, First Timothy 5.17 tells us this, 
that some elders are worthy of a double honor. And the idea there is that some, and, it's in the, and the context there is about teaching and proclamation of the word, that some elders are to be paid for their teaching and proclamation of the word because it's such a priority in the church. Um, Acts 15.2 and Acts 16.4, elders are called upon to deal with doctrinal matters within the church. Acts chapter 20, Paul heading to Jerusalem, eventually headed to Rome, stops, and he sends word ahead to the Ephesian elders. They meet him as he, as he gets off the boat, and he meets them on the shore there, and he has an incredible moving experience with the um, elders from Ephesus. They cry together, and he gives them one last teaching, one last admonishment, and then in, and in the context of that, in Acts 20, verse 28 and 29, Paul calls the elders to defend the faith and to protect the church. So it's pretty clear from the Old Testament to the New Testament, this idea of leadership within the local congregation of spiritually mature, godly men is a really important role. So let's go back now to 1 Peter chapter 5. And secondly, this morning, I want to talk about the road of an elder. And let's see what Peter has to say here. The road of an elder. So he says in verse 1, he says, So I exhort, I encourage, I am calling the elders among you. As a fellow elder, he says, and a witness of the teaching or the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that will be revealed. And let me just stop there for a moment. I love what Peter does here, and he gives some great counsel in regard to spiritual leadership within the church. Peter talks about, without giving specific details, he's going to give those and more, he kind of indirectly says here, let me give you another aspect of what an elder looks like. And I love what he says here. He doesn't, in the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 1 of this letter, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so early on, he identifies himself. I'm an apostle of Jesus. Jesus had called me out. I was one of the 12. I'm an apostle. And he wasn't doing that to puff himself up. He was doing that to say, I'm the one who has written this letter to you believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I'm the one, Peter, called out by Jesus. I'm writing this to you. Now as he closes this letter, as he has established so many doctrinal and important aspects of faith, here's what he says. He says, listen, I am a fellow elder with you. He doesn't say, hey, I want to remind you, I'm Peter, I'm the rock, I'm the one the church is to be built on. He doesn't do any of that. He just simply calls himself, I am a fellow elder. And he exhorts them to embrace their role in leadership within the church. Now, we are not for sure if these elders were neglecting their role or if they just needed to be reminded of their role. But this word exhort that Peter uses here is the same word that you see in John chapter 14 when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit will come and He will come alongside you. It's the word paraclete or parakleos, and it means this, one who comes alongside. And Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit doing that, and Peter uses the same Greek word to say to elders that elders in a church are those who come alongside walk alongside the sheep, be examples to the sheep, and come alongside to support and to encourage. And so Peter says, listen, I want to remind you that you are called to be, as an elder, you are called to shepherd. 
And just, this won't be on the screen, but it's interesting, and I want you to notice this. He says, I, I, I exhort the elders among you. And I looked this week, there's no place in the New Testament, and when it speaks about elders in regard to the church, that it's ever used singularly. It's always used in a, in a plural sense. And here's why. There's a dangerous model that's out there where there can be an authoritarian model where the pastor, whatever he says and whatever he does and whatever he decides, um, that's the way it goes and you can't argue about that. And that's, we call that a dictatorship. Um, that's what that's called. But here at LifePoint and, and what the New Testament teaches is there's a plurality of elders who make the decisions. Now, in, within the elder leadership of the church there are unique roles about those things but i don't have i don't have a a greater vote i don't get two votes or whatever the case if we're making decisions i'm just one of a plurality of elders who helps make decisions for the church and that is a good model and it's the model that the new testament established um it doesn't mean that um if you have a plurality of elders that everything's always going to go well because you can have some knucklehead elders right? You can never have a knucklehead pastor. Never. You can do that. But you can, uh, you can have knucklehead elders, all right? So, um, so this is the model, and again, it's established, and I think it's a, well, um, a well-established model for us uh, to follow. It's always mentioned in this plurality sense. Acts twenty seventeen, and from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called to him the elders of the church. Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, um, including the overseers and deacons. There's a plurality that's there. Acts 4.23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed and fasted, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Titus 1.5, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. And so... The role of an elder is to be a midst, is to be amongst other elders leading a local body. But let me show you what Peter shares here in verse 1 that I think is important. And the first aspect of what he indirectly communicates about who he is and about his role in elders is there is a humility that is there. So Peter, again, later in chapter 5 here, he's not going, hey, I just want to remind you that I'm Peter. He says, listen... I want, to, I want to exhort you elders, and I want to remind you that I'm a fellow elder. I'm, I, I, am, I am a fellow elder, and there's a deep-felt humility with Peter as he's been writing to these, these persecuted believers, saying, listen, I'm just one among you. I've gone through what you've gone through. I'm not above you. Now look up here. Some of you grew up in this. I believe one of the clearest evidences that just drives a stake into Roman Catholicism's claim about Peter being Pope is this text. Peter, Peter doesn't claim, he doesn't proclaim, hey, I want to remind you, you know, um, I was by a campfire one day and Jesus said that I'm the rock and he's going to build the church on me and I'm, I'm the central person moving forward as leader of the church. He doesn't do it in the book of Acts and he doesn't do it in 1 Peter and he doesn't do it in 2 Peter. None of the writers of the New Testament, the other writers, make any kind of proclamation, hey, we got to follow what Peter tells us. The New Testament proclaims that 
Jesus is the shepherd. There are under shepherds, and we follow the chief shepherd. He's the one, and and it just drives a stake into this idea because there's nowhere where Peter proclaims this. As a matter of fact, all the way until Acts chapter 12, Peter plays a prominent role. Acts chapter 13 comes along. Peter just basically disappears until one mention of him in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. And the rest of the book of Acts, who is the main character? Paul. And so if Peter was the the main emphasis, wouldn't you not think that he would continue to be the main emphasis through the rest of the book of Acts? It would make sense about that because he would be the center of things. But he's not the center of things. A man or a woman is never to be the center of anything. Jesus is always to be the center of everything. He's the center of the leadership and the pointing of it. And there's a beautiful humility that Peter writes here that I'm not the point of the church. Jesus is the point of the church. Secondly, there's a cross-centered vision that must be a part of every elder's life. And so he says, he says, listen, as a fellow elder, you hear the humility. Then he says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And so there was, <clears throat> there was this beautiful aspect of <clears throat> his relationship with Christ that, that just drove him for the rest of his days. He couldn't get the idea of Jesus on the cross, Jesus' death, the shedding of the blood of Jesus out of his head. And so his life as an elder was one where he lived with a focus of the cross. Now, you and I know that he wasn't at the cross. Only John was at the cross and literally witnessed the suffering of Christ on the cross. But Peter for three to three and a half years, depending on, on, on the perspective of things, lived with Jesus for three to three and a half years. He saw every confrontation with the religious leaders. He saw all the rejections of Jesus' teaching. He saw the hostility. He saw, he saw all of that. He likely in the garden that night, if there was enough light, that when Jesus came back and he'd been sweating drops of blood, because of the stress in the Garden of Gethsemane of what was about to take place, he likely could have seen the blood on Jesus' face as the capillaries had burst in Jesus and he was sweating these drops of blood. And so Peter, yes, had seen the suffering of Jesus. He had seen the suffering of Jesus. And he had experienced the suffering of Jesus by being a follower and participating in the sufferings of Christ. And so there's a humility to him as an elder. There is a cross-centered vision that he has that he loved the cross. This word witness here that he uses is the same word in the Greek for a martyr. The word martyr, we, we say the word martyr and it means somebody who dies for their faith. In the Greek, that's not what the word martyr means. The, the word martyr means one who testifies to what they have seen. And we've attached it because usually in the context of martyrdom in regard to there are those who testify to what they've seen, what they believe about Jesus, and it cost them their life. And over time, we've, we've lowered that word to not, to not just mean or just to mean someone who gives their life. But a, but a martyr in the Greek means someone who's seen something and testifies about it. So he has a cross-centered vision. There's a humility there. Thirdly, He says this, I am a partaker. A participating faith is critical to deep, lifelong faith. If we don't live this out, we don't learn things. We live this out, we learn things, and there's a depth that comes from obedience. Going back, Jesus said, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey. 
Teach them to obey. Teach them to walk in the things that I've commanded you to walk in. You teach them to walk in the very same things. And so there's an aspect of an elder that an elder should have a participating, active faith. Now, Peter had seen the glory of Jesus already on the mountain of transfiguration. You remember? They go up on the mountain. Jesus' clothing becomes bright white. There's this dazzling thing there. He's amazed. He, he, he says to Jesus, hey, uh, you know, Elijah comes and Moses is there and he's witnessing this conversation. He's like, this is so awesome. Should I build some places that we can live up here, some tabernacles so that they can stay because this is so great. So he has seen an aspect of the glory of Jesus already and has had a great impact on his life. And we will see this when we get to Second Peter in a few months that he will talk about it and he will be reminded of this. I want, as a matter of fact, turn to the next page just for a moment. Second Peter chapter 1 for a moment, verse 16. Second Peter 1, verse 16. He speaks about the Mount of Transfiguration here. He says, For we, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. But look at 19. Gosh, this is powerful. Watch this. And we have the prophetic Word of God, word, that's the idea there, the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now look up here for a moment because this is so critical. This is proclaimed everywhere in the church today except here. And maybe some other places, I know it's, it's, it's not proclaimed. But this is the predominant idea. Experience, 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 experience. Get an experience with Christ. Get an experience with Christ. Get an experience with Christ. Because if you'll just have all these emotional experiences, it will propel you for the rest of your life, and you have this deep-seated passion. Do you notice what Peter said there? I was on the mountain, and Jesus' clothing just went crazy white. And God the Father spoke, and I heard, I heard the Father speak. It was so awesome, I wanted to build tabernacles and just stay up on the mountain and experience that. I was there, I saw it, I experienced it. And then now he writes here, but God's word, I was there and saw all that. That was my experience. I testified to it. Other people testified to it. And now he says in verse 19, and he says, but we have God's word that's more fully confirmed than my experience. Are you, do you get that? Do you hear that? Because this is what's proclaimed. Just go turn Christian television on and this is what you will hear. Get an experience, get an experience, get an experience. And it's okay to have an experience. We have all had an experience with Jesus. But Peter says, the Scripture is more certain than our experience. You know why? You know what's wrong with our heart? You remember what Jeremiah said? What's wrong with our heart? It is deceitfully wicked. 
Sometimes even our spiritual experiences, we take them too far and proclaim things with them that God never really intended with them. And so that's why Peter says here, it's not the experience. That's why here, I want to always not only engage your heart, but I want you to engage your mind. Because when our mind is transformed and we think differently, then we live differently. That's why it's critical for us to know God's word. And so Peter's saying here, I have an active faith. Later, in, we just read there in 2 Peter 1, he says this, my experience on the mountain pales in comparison, as awesome as that was, that God has spoken his word and it's come to us. That is more fully confirmed than my spiritual experiences. Are y'all with me? That's what it says there. But the church just today in America just pushes this experience. And I'm for experiences. I've had so many great experiences with Christ. But it's God's word that makes the difference. Because our emotions are poo, up and down, aren't they? Just all day long, they're just up and down. That's why God's word is the foundation. It's the rock that we just sang about a while ago that we stand upon. Lastly, not lastly, just lastly on this point. There's a future perspective. So here's a humility. There's a humility that is a part of his life. He has a cross-centered vision. He's a partaker. He's a participant. And then he says this, and I am a participant with has a future perspective in the glory that is going to be revealed. John 13, 36, Jesus in the, in, in the upper room. Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? You keep talking about going somewhere. Where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to the 12, truly I say to you in the new world, when the son of man in the millennial kingdom sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's telling them there's a future aspect to this following me and walking with me that is going to come. What an encouragement for these elders that Peter is writing to who have been suffering such persecution, trying to lead people, walking in the persecution, telling them this suffering pales in comparison to what's coming. Paul wrote it this way, Romans eight eighteen. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is something coming that just tells us, hang in here with this life. This life's going to be done with. The physical pain, the spiritual pain, the emotional pain, it's going to be over with. The sickness will be done, and we will be with Him. So that's just verse 1, and I'm not going to stop there. So let's, we've got to walk through. We're going to move a little bit quicker. So thirdly, what are the responsibilities of elders? Two and three, talk about this. Two and three, give us the responsibilities of elders, and then it also talks about the risks of being an elder inherent. But we're going to talk, first of all, about the responsibilities of an elder. Do you remember in Mark chapter 1, um, Peter is at his boat, and Jesus comes by, and he tells them, I'm going to make you what? I'm going to make you a fisherman. Then in John chapter 21, after Jesus has been um, resurrected, they've gone back to fishing, six of them have, as they're waiting, okay, when he told us to go to Galilee, when's he coming? So one day Peter goes, hey, let's go fishing. And five others go, okay, we'll go fishing with you. So 
So six of the 11 that remained alive, they're out on a boat. Jesus shows up on the shore. Hey, friends, you caught anything? Nothing. Hey, put your net on the other side. And they catch this thing. And John recognizes that's Jesus on the shore. And Peter's so excited that he jumps out of the boat and he either swims or it's shallow enough for him to stand. And he goes in. When they, when they finally all get there, Jesus has a fire going. He hadn't caught any fish, but he doesn't have to because he can just make them appear. He's got, he's got a fire going. He's got bread going, and he's got fish cooked. And they sit down, and they have a breakfast with him. And Jesus looks at Peter, and three times he says, Hey, listen, I, in the beginning I told you to be a fisher of men, but I got a new role for you. You're going to shepherd the people of God. So he says, hey, Peter, do you love me more than these? And likely he's pointing to the apostles and he's pointing to the boats and the nets and the fish. Hey, Peter, do you love me more than your occupation in your old life? Do you love me more than that? Do you love me more than them? Peter said, Lord, you know that I do. And he says, well, then you feed my sheep. And then a second time he says, hey, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know that I love you. Well, then you tend my lambs. And a third time, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, it says, was grieved, John 21 tells us, that that Jesus had asked him a third time. And he said, Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And he said, then you feed my sheep. You feed my sheep. You proclaim the truth. You feed them. So here's the scripture. Here's what the scripture tells us here. The responsibility of an elder, one of the main responsibilities, is the proclamation of the truth. We proclaim the truth to people. And, and, and he says, but who do we do that to? Look what it says. Look, look, look at the text there. I guess I ought to get back there. First Peter chapter uh, 5, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now look up here for a moment because I want to touch on this. So who are elders responsibility for? So there's churches all around us today. Are, are the elders at our church responsible for all those people? No, we're not. We are responsible for those who have chosen LifePoint to be their church and those who sit under the teaching authority here. This is, you are the ones that we are responsible for. Now, it doesn't mean that if I meet somebody and they were to ask me a question and we had a conversation, I could speak something into their life or say something. Um, that's not that kind of thing. But we're not to shepherd everybody in the world. We shepherd those in this local congregation called LifePoint. We shepherd those who attend here. So somebody who attends another church um, and they center the teaching authority of that church, then the elders of that church have the responsibility for those people and we elders here have the responsibility for those who attend here. So the responsibility of an elder is that, number one, we are to exercise oversight and we are to do so willingly. So let me give you some things of the responsibilities of an elder. The first one is Um, elders are to exercise oversight willingly. Amen, that's right. He says, yes, do that. Listen to John 10, 11 through 13. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, when he sees a wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and he flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Elders in a body should love the body and they exercise oversight and they're never about self-preservation. They're about self-sacrifice and laying their life down for the sheep. 
That's what an elder does. So they exercise oversight, and it's done willingly. It's not forced. Secondly, we are to exercise this oversight exactly according to God's will. The next phrase there, exercising oversight, but willingly, as God would have you. How do you know how God would have us shepherd? Well, the only way to know how God would have a shepherd is to know the Scripture. So elders are to know the Scripture as God would have you eldership and elder and shepherd people, pastor people. The only way to do that is to do it according to God's will. Even as sheep come and go, even as sheep say, hey, I, I don't like this, and, and they, wanna, they, they want the body to go or the flock to go in a direction that's not biblical, elders shepherd in such a way to keep things connected to the Word of God. And that's the only thing that we are called to do primarily is to make sure that we are walking in the truth of God's Word as we shepherd. We are not to disengage from what we have been called to. Elders are not. And they are to, we are to do exactly what we are calling you to do. We are to live that way. This role is to be done according to God's word. Thirdly, we are to do this eagerly. This word eagerly means cheerfully and promptly. Church leadership is to go at this work and at this ministry like we love it, not as if we are forced to do it. And I'll say this, I've been doing this a long time now. I'm a young, older person, I guess. I don't know, I don't know what I am. I'm at that time of my life where I'm not old and I'm not young anymore. I think I'm just ripe. Does that sound good? I think I'm ripe, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what the right phrase is. But I do love what I do. And sometimes it's a labor of love and sometimes it's difficult. But this is one that I and every elder should do cheerfully. Martha should do her role with the children cheerfully. And I can always tell when I'm doing this for myself or I've not been feeding myself, I get frustrated with you. And then when I take a pause back, I'm like, okay, that's, that's, a, that's a me issue. It's not a them issue. I just, I've been doing this out of obligation. I've not been doing this cheerfully and lovingly and caringly. Now, sometimes you are frustrating when I am excited about it. But that's just the reality of life, isn't it? The reality of life. Is marriage just always perfect? Tabor's y'all are always just, it's always perfectly getting along, right? Yeah, no. Life, life isn't that way. Church isn't that way either. But there's a call upon our life as elders to do this eagerly. Not for desire of gain, but to do it eagerly. And fourthly, we are to be examples to the flock. We are to be out front. We're to be leading the people, and we should do whatever is necessary um, to help bring about that. And let me just remind us, leadership is not lordship. It's not tyrannizing people, but it is setting an example of what faith looks like. This phrase that Peter used here, in your charge, is a, a Greek word that just speaks about receiving something significant by lot. So casting lots or some inheritance or some of that nature. And the idea is, is that elders get called in this because they've walked with God 
It's been recognized by the body that these are men who are really godly and there's wisdom, there's passion, there's there, and there's a recognition of it. And just as, as God was loved or Israel was loved by God, so shepherds, so elders love the body as God did that. Just as God loved Israel, so should the elder love the people and to be an example to the people. And this calling is not earned. It's not earned. It's a calling and it is given by His grace. All right, fourth, there's risk to lead eldership. Let me deal with those. So he says, shepherd the flock of God, verse 2, there's among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion. This word compulsion means to be forced to do something or to be co- coerced to do it from some kind of outside influence. Eldership is to be a heart investment into the people. Shepherds are not to do the shepherding because of some external pressure, but we are to do so because we love the work and we want to care for people. Remember what I read a while ago, 1 Timothy 3, 1? If this is a trustworthy saying, Paul says. If anyone desires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This is a godly task, and it's not to be done under compulsion. Secondly, and we've seen the abuse of this, in our lifetime it is not for shameful gain so he says listen there's a risk to say hey i'm an elder and uh or or there's a risk to say hey you've got to do this i'm i'm forcing you to do this it's not one of those one of those things and then but there's some who said okay i'll be an elder and boy i can get a television show and i can tell people if they'll send money into me i'll send them cloths that they can lay on their body and they'll bring healing and I can make money. And they have used their role as an elder and a leader in the spiritual giftedness and they've done so for shameful gain. This word shameful gain here means dishonorable gain or to commercialize the gospel for personal gain. So all this stuff that's on TV that speaks about send your money to me and these people who have have enough money to buy private planes and things of that nature, that's not what the Scripture speaks. We are not, an elder and a leader is not to use this position for dishonest gain or to commercialize it. And I don't know how you are. I'm just going to make a confession here. There are sometimes I walk into Mardell and I just can't stomach the commercialization of the gospel that's there. We have made trinkets of the cross that was bloody and we've made it pure, and we've made it so nice looking, and we've made all kinds of stuff out of it. And I think we sometimes, in my personal opinion, we have gone too far about some of that stuff to commercialize things for gain. I sometimes have a problem with how expensive Bibles are. Just some of them just way too expensive. And if that's ever a case with you who can't afford a Bible, you, you come to me, you come to an elder, and we will buy you a Bible. Because there's nothing, no greater gift that we can give you than the scripture we gave away two bibles last wednesday night to two students who've started coming and they've had bibles and ryan came to me and said hey these two guys these two brothers they don't have bibles and so i immediately went to my office and i pulled bibles off the shelf they were brand new and gave it to them last wednesday night so we do not commercialize the gospel ever commercialize the gospel thirdly we're not to do this domineering an elder is never to be autocratic in his approach and is never to delight in using his authority with a domineering spirit. It is never to be there. And there's a risk in leadership in any kind of field to do that. All right, let's close with this. 
there's a reward for eldership. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Here's the reward of eldership for those who are in spiritual leadership. This could be, now I, I believe elders are men, but I believe that there are callings upon women that are not different than the calling upon an elder in regard to the qualifications and the responsibilities that are there. I think we, I think we'd be hard-pressed to say that women don't have to follow, be a, be a wife of one husband and, and uh, don't be a drunkard, be somebody who's hospitable. Uh, you should be able to teach. And so I don't believe that means that a woman is an elder, but I believe that those are the qualifications that show spiritual leadership um, within the church. And so if you are a women's minister or you teach women, then I, I think there's a reward to those of us who invest in ministry and leadership that is unique. We know this, that James writes that we who teach are going to be judged more what? Strictly. And I love doing what I do on Sunday morning, but I'm scared to death every Sunday morning to stand up here. Because I have to give an account, I'm going to have to give an account one day before him what, I, what I've called you and us to be and what I've called us to do. So I shake in my shoes. That's why I give about 20 hours a week to what I do on Sunday morning because this is not some kind of passing responsibility. I believe the calling that I have in my life is the most unique calling on the planet to be a preacher of the gospel. And there's such a heavy responsibility of that, and I never, ever take it lightly. That's why I'll never stand up here if I'm not ready. If I show up one Sunday morning and I think I've misheard God, I will not preach. I'll see if somebody else has heard from God, and if they haven't, we will sing, and we'll just read an entire book of the Bible on Sunday morning because God has, he speaks through the Scripture. We will always do something like that. So, so there is... There's a responsibility in the midst of spiritual leadership. And yet there is also such great reward. I want you to know, and I probably don't tell you enough, I love you. I do. I love you and I pray for you. When I walk to the restroom, when I walk to the kitchen, every week I pray every time I enter into this room that when we gather here, that we would be motivated together to go and walk intimately with God. Pray for our life groups, and I care for you. And I've told you this before. I'll tell it again in case you don't get it. You can call me at 3 o'clock in the morning, except for Paul Lyman, texting me at 5 o'clock in the morning like he did this week, <laughs> just to pass on information. <laughs> don't, don't text me early in the morning to give me information. But if you need me at 2.13 a.m., my phone sits right beside me. You call me. And I'll get out of bed and brush my teeth real quick and I will come and meet you wherever you want to meet. And these elders here will do the same. And if they won't do that to you, then you tell me and I will deal with that. I love you. But if you are connected in leadership, there's a reward. So Peter calls it, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There are special rewards that are going to come to spiritual leaders at the judgment seat of Christ for faithful 
being a faithful shepherd. And Peter says when, the, when Christ appears at the second coming, there's going to be glorious rewards for those who have faithfully led. And this word uh, unfading here in the Greek means this, something that never loses its bloom. It's a picture of some flowers that you can cut them and they're not connected to the source of life, but if you put them in water, they come alive again. And there were flowers back in Israel that would do that. That even though you cut it, if you put it in water, it would stay alive. And so it's, it was this idea, man, that flower never fades. It doesn't ever fade. And Peter uses this Greek word to say this, that there's a reward that comes to those who give their life to ministry, and it doesn't ever fade. The Greeks had different crowns. The, the word crown here in this context that Peter uses is the Greek word stephanos, and it was a victor's crown that they gave at the Olympics. And it was a crown that didn't fade. It was a crown that was permanent. It was a crown that lasted. The Scripture speaks about in the New Testament three places about the crown. James 1.12, Blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised those who love him. 2 Timothy 4.8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, Paul says. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope or joy or the crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you, Paul says? For you are our glory and our joy. And then Paul says again to the Philippians church, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, you are my joy and you are my crown. So there's a reward of eldership that comes. So let me just close with a few thoughts. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to close there. The task of being a shepherd is difficult. Sometimes the sheep are stubborn. Sometimes the shepherd is stubborn. Sometimes both are disappointing. Sometimes both are ungrateful. Sometimes there's misunderstanding. But if you're a leader, you're an elder, and you're looking for an easy time or the praise of men, then you're going to be disappointed because it's not always going to be that way. Faithful shepherds and faithful ministers of God of the gospel are not to labor for the applause of men or some earthly reward, but to labor for the glory of God. And I'll say this, that biblical leaders and elders will never receive their full payment in this life. It will come in the next life. That's when it'll come. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 13. Let me just show a couple of things here. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders and those who spoke to you the word of God. Don't forget about your life group leader. Don't forget about your youth pastor. Don't forget about your your pastor. Don't forget about the elders who spoke God's word to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now go down to verse 17 of Hebrews 13. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So writer of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, was encouraging these believers to respect their leaders who were godly and to remember them. Okay, did y'all make it through that? Yeah, it's great teaching though. That's, the, that, that's, what, that's what leadership in the church should look like. 
And I appreciate the men in this room that are elders, and I appreciate the ones that in time will be elders. I appreciate our life group leaders. I appreciate uh, Martha. I appreciate Mark. I appreciate um, Mike and, and Dan and Tim who teach our youth and Lindsay who teaches our youth and the Bible studies that happen and take place. I just am grateful for leaders. But I just want to remind us that all of these things, these characteristics, they must be a part of our life. They must be things that we are striving for because it's critical for leaders to have godly character. All right, let's pray.